0: what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast and today's guest is none other than tom nichols to talk about his brand new book our own worst enemy all right so i know a lot of followers of tom have come to check out this episode of the podcast so if you're new welcome. I love to learn. I love to read on all sorts of different topics. I've read almost 300 books this year. So if you love to learn and have different conversations, make sure you are following the podcast or subscribe to it, whatever platform you're listening on. I do a bunch of episodes since I read so much and I talk to so many amazing authors here. So make sure that you stick around so you don't miss any episodes. Also, also everybody out there, everybody listening to this, if you're not following me yet over on Twitter and or Instagram, you'd need to. So down in the description, make sure you're following me at the rewired soul. All right? And real quick, real quick, at the time of posting this episode, it is Monday, September twentieth. And September is National Recovery Month. All right. So those of you who know me, you know, I am a recovering drug addict. I got sober back in 2012. I've worked in addiction treatment. My YouTube channel blew up for my mental health and addiction content. And I'm also a writer. Well, today is the last day to get one or both of my books on addiction recovery, as well as helping someone, you know, who may be struggling with addiction. So those are free. Those are 100 percent free until the end of today, it was going all weekend. It's free today, so make sure you check down in the description, they're available on Kindle for free. But for those of you who don't know, cause I get this question all the time, you don't need a Kindle, all right? Whether you got a PC, a Mac, an iPhone, uh, an Android phone, you can download the Kindle app for free, grab my books for free and you can read them, all right? But anyways, the first book, Hope, it's my personal story of overcoming addiction, depression, and anxiety. So it's part memoir and part, just a lot of the tools that I've used. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of what helps keep me sober today. The second one is Caught in the Crossfire, which is for anybody who has a loved one struggling with addiction. All right. Not only does it have intervention strategies and trying to understand what's going on in the addict's mind, the number one reason I wrote Caught in the Crossfire is to help to make sure that you are taking care of your mental health when you have somebody else struggling with an addiction, because that's the top priority. All right. So even if you do not need one of those books, spread the word, let people know it's free until the end of the day. All right. But anyways, anyways, getting back to Tom, my illustrious guest. All right. This is a great conversation. I can't tell you how much I loved it. Uh, I just tweeted uh, out a minute ago that when I was editing this, I was like, man, Tom is like this tough love older dude that I needed in my life. I was going to call him a tough love boomer, but as you'll hear in this episode, Tom, uh, clearly states that he is not technically a boomer, and, he, and he, he's in this generation that I have never even heard of. But anyways, uh, yeah, I am a millennial. I'm 36 years old. Some of you uh, really enjoyed that conversation I had with uh, Jill uh, Filipovich about her book, OK, Boomer. So uh, when I'm talking with Tom in this episode, I'm like, OK, Tom, give me some tough love. And he he does not hesitate, right? But aside from that, we talked about you know why we're so divided politically. And we, we talk about, you know, entitlement. We talk about uh, the lack of gratitude. And we also talk about how there's still need for improvement in the United States, even if you're not living in a third world country. And, yeah, uh, I, I love Tom's books. I first was introduced uh, to his book, The Death of Expertise loved it. And we talk about that. We talk about the narcissism that's kind of grown in the United States and all this stuff, but all the worst enemy, I was uh, fortunate enough to get an early copy of it and I binged it. So yeah, I'm so glad that he was able to find some time to chat with me. He's a super, super busy guy. And for any anybody from my audience who doesn't happen to follow Tom's work, you need to like he he knows his stuff and he has this this level head and if you follow him you'll see a bunch of cat pictures and uh some hot takes on stuff on twitter but anyways anyways without further ado here's my conversation with tom nichols about his brand new book our own worst enemy All right. Hello, Tom. How you doing today? Good, Chris. So yeah, we're here to talk about your new book, Our Own Worst Enemies. So a lot of people from my audience, I'm sure they're familiar with you, but this new book, can you kind of break down like what, what inspired this book? There's a lot about like the current political landscape. So I'm wondering, is there anything that like, you know, was the catalyst for this book or what you notice that made you <laughs> want to write this thing?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because people, I think, will tend to think that I wrote it about the last few years, mm. uh, but actually I didn't. I mean, I started writing this book and I started drafting it out probably about three years ago. And it, it's, it was actually a book that, as I say in the preface, it was kind of lurking underneath the last book as well, that, um, the key word being in both books was narcissism. Mm-hmm. That, It was just striking to me how narcissistic um, society had become. And I'm not the first person to think of that. I mean, one of the biggest kind of bestsellers about narcissism came out over 40 years ago Mm. when uh, people were starting to first recognize this. But I, I, I think the catalyst for writing about it was that I wasn't satisfied with a lot of the answers about why politics were going wrong. Yeah, um, everything, pe- people were coming to really easy solutions. Well, it's because of the left, it's because of the right, it's because of globalization, it's because of economics, it's because of, you know, the housing bubble, it's because, you know, and I'm like, I, I keep thinking this is a longer term thing. This has been mm-hmm. going on for about 40 years and, you know, decline trust in government, people not showing up for elections, um, elections, you know, candidates getting kind of nuttier and and more like reality show uh, yeah. types you know so i said all right you know if you're a scholar and you care about this stuff you sit down and you start kind of testing out ideas and why this is happening and finally i just came to the realization that um i had to write something that i think was a longer look at where we are and also included where the rest of the world is because this is not just happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. This is happening in the UK. It's happening in Italy. It's happening in Turkey, Poland, Brazil, and India. And, um, and so I, I, and I also thought initially I was writing this from a more analytical background. And then I decided to write it from a much more personal point of view Mm -hmm. and include a lot of autobiographical details because I come from that world of a deindustrialized factory town, where mm-hmm. you know people are went through a bad time. There's a lot of alienation, um, and a and a lot of what I'm seeing around me just doesn't make sense as an explanation of a democracy becoming weaker simply because you know the economy's changed. Yeah. Uh and I'll I'll just wrap that part up by saying what really struck me was that the people that are the most angry about democracy are actually pretty well off and middle class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, it, and that
1: was the part that I think if you're asking me to go back to the very beginning of your question, what made me do this? It's that uh, the explanations for why democracy is in trouble, people kept saying, well, it's income inequality and it's wealth. And, it's, and I'm like, um, but the people that are the most angry about democracy are doing pretty well. They're, they're the kind of people that are bitching about democracy while they're sitting on their boats
0: yeah, yeah uh, that's that's that really
1: explanation yeah and what's what's interesting why i love
0: having these conversations like you've you've been in this realm for years and i like i really got into politics probably right when you were drafting this book and coming up with it like 2016 was that for me like i've always been kind of like a political nihilist like why should and i that, vote that who radicalized
1: cares a lot of people that year
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's when I like, I looked and, uh, yeah, I was like, okay, what the hell happened? What's going on? You know? Cause a lot of us thought like, Hey, this could never happen, but, but yeah, like, uh, to your point about, you know, it's, it's not like the impoverished who are having, you know, these types of issues. And, and in the book, you dive into a lot of this stuff. I I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But like one thing for those who haven't read the book, one thing that I loved was kind of this self-reflection. Like you said, like the autobiographical part, like when, when did you, like when you were looking at it's, it's one of the hardest things for anybody to do, right? When did you kind of look at yourself and say, wait, am I, Part of the problem, too, like, what did you kind of notice about, you know, your own behaviors over the lo- recent decades that might have been leading you down this route, too, maybe?
1: Uh, well, you know, it's um, it's a part. I've always wondered that because I think like a lot of kids who come from my background, um, I made a class transition. I mean, I went from kind of edge of poor working class to, you know, by the time I was my I left for school. My parents were, had pretty much stabilized their marriage and their finances. And, um, we were kind of lower middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course I got an education and I transitioned into the upper middle class, um uh, by the time I was middle-aged and I thought, okay, we talk about the collapse of democracy and all of these classes blame each other. It's the working class, it's the elites, it's the poor, it's the rich. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I've walked through all of those rooms. You know, was I part of this problem at some point? And Mm -hmm. and I had to sit down and really think about this. Um, You know, in my younger days, I was sort of a kind of, um, I was a Republican for a lot of years. I, Mm -hmm. I, I, I turned 18 in 1978. Uh, my first election was 1980. You know, I was definitely part of that. Um, what the Brits call blue collar Toryism. You know, the kind of the work I was born to be a Democrat. Yeah. I'm a Northeastern working class ethnic, part yeah. Greek, part Irish. You know, that that's like the that's like a computer generated model of a Democrat. Yeah. In the, in the 1970s. And yet, like a lot of kids of my generation. I actually registered Republican and I voted for Ronald Reagan. Um, and yeah, I had some of that kind of, let's, you know, stick it to the, stick it to the elite, stick it to the smarty pants um, you know, the, the ordinary folks or the repository of common sense, you know. Um, and then I came to realize that mm, that's probably not true either. Uh, but then, you know, as I got older, I had to contend with, am I really part of the problem of saying, well, you know, um, we educated people know everything and, you know, ordinary folks should just know their place mm-hmm. kind of an attitude. And I, I didn't want to be part of that either. So I, I had to sit and think, having having traversed all of these socioeconomic groups over the course of my 60 years on the planet, you know, was I helping or hurting anything? Mm-hmm. And I think the other reason it, I put in a lot of autobiographical details so that people wouldn't make assumptions. Yeah. You know, that's a hard, like when you say, hey, you know, the, um, you know, working class people who don't really understand the difference between Pete Buttigieg and Donald Trump, that's a problem. And they say, well, of course you say that because you were born with educated parents with a Summer spoon in a Tony suburb. You know, yeah. I'm like, no, I, my parents had no education. My parents were high school dropouts. So I was born in a factory town. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I wanted to be able to say, don't assume that about me. Don't assume that, you know, I don't have any understanding of that problem because I grew up with it. Yeah. And so like one of the
0: things that, that you mentioned in the book and I, 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 like it stood out to me and I I tweeted about it when I got uh you know the early copy was you you mentioned in the book towards the beginning is that something about like you know uh we're we're not looking for like perfection and a lot of people are like hey hey look at these other countries and especially like with Afghanistan and all that stuff being in the news recently they're like hey would you rather be over there would you rather be in these other places where women don't get treated right and and that's kind of like this like okay well America's fine if you look at these other places but What do you say to people like that? Like, like when they're, they're like, Hey, we're better than a lot of other places. You're not living in North Korea. Like, how can we still improve while being
1: grateful for what we do have here in the States? You know what I mean? I I think the problem, I mean, I think when people say, well, you're better off than Afghanistan, that's not really a serious comment because, you know, it's (laughs) like, that's like the, um, when your parents used to say to, you know, when they're starving children in India, you know, and of course the answer was always, yeah, name two, um, you know, but I, I think the bigger problem, is, and the problem I talk about in the book, are the people who say, things here are terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's not really an answer to say, well, it's better off than Afghanistan. But it is an answer, I think, to say, it's better off than 25 years ago, mm-hmm. within my lifetime, within my adult lifetime, The world is measurably better, including the world you live in in the United States is measurably better. Because one of the things that undermines democracy is when people who are reasonably well-off come to believe that they are miserable and aggrieved and impoverished and suffering. And you know, that that it's the, I can't tell you how many times I've had college age students say to me, Professor, you just don't understand. These are the worst times ever. And um, you know, I just it's it's said with such confidence that it takes your breath away. Yeah. Because you know, then you find yourself saying, as I often did to these things, saying, "Look, this isn't even the worst times in my lifetime." Uh You know. um, And then, of course, you know, they'll because people love statistics. Yeah, but in you know, 1970, a guy could buy a house in New York. For a family of four. And I said, yes, after you've been drafted, served in Vietnam, Uh, um, gotten the GI bill. um, And if you're a woman, um, asking your husband for permission to get a credit card, you Mm. know, and they kind of, you know, and I say, yes, you could afford a two bedroom apartment where you would live with your two children with no air conditioning, one television, one phone, um, you know, in, in hot. Uh, hot water most of the time Mm -hmm. you know like they they have when they when they hear well a worker in 1970 could afford an apartment they think a really nice place in brooklyn you know hardwood floors and high sea buildings and no you know they forget that people in the 70s um 60s and 70s lived in dumps Mm -hmm. which is why they were affordable and because you've afforded them on one salary, because women didn't work and minorities were kept out of the workplace mm-hmm. as competition, um, and so you know it's not the comparison to Afghanistan that should wake people up. It's the comparison to say, um, think about what your, think about why you believe that democracy has failed, and ask yourself if you really want the thing you want, which is to go backward in time. Even to, even to when I was in college in 19, I'd in college in 1979, 1980, mm-hmm. um, where 14% of women went to college, Yeah, you know, well, college is, is, was more affordable then. Yes. It was more affordable then and far fewer people went oh. because they just didn't go to college Yeah. and um, they got jobs and they said, well, there were jobs. Okay. You know, um, when I graduated from high school, You know, two of the guys I graduated with, I said, so what do you guys, you know, I, they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go off to BU and I'm going to study chemistry. Um, or so I thought at the time, I said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're packing up the pickup truck and we're pulling our money and we're going to Texas because there's construction jobs. Mm -hmm. When are you leaving? Like two days after graduation. Um, you know, the idea that people romanticize that time Mm -hmm. again. It's not, it's not how we're, how they're doing in Afghanistan. It's what was, what would your life have been like at 20 when I was 20?
0: Yeah. So, okay, Tom, since I have you here. And I know you'll have no problem with this. Give me some tough love, all right? So I'm a 36 year old guy, right? You're still a young buck, but you're still a little. You're a little older than me. And I
1: so like old enough to be your father, Chris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like, I, I recently had uh, Jill Filipovich on here about her book. Okay, boomer, let's talk. How you know? Uh, I don't know if you have read that, but like how the boomer generation like left millennials behind, something like that. But but I'm that guy, right? I look back, and you know. Uh, But I can relate to kind of your experience. Like my parents, like, you know, they didn't have it that great. My mom got a PhD, uh, you know, after dropping out of high school and stuff. But, you know, I look back and I'm like, yeah, I can't afford a house. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. You know, minimum wage hasn't been raised in, you know, X amount of years. And I'm struggling and, you know, all these other things. Right. Like, I think I'm the guy who thinks you guys had it great. So lay it on me. Like, are there places where I should be more grateful where but also where should i be looking for hey how can we improve this thing you know what i mean so lay it on me tom where do you live i live in las vegas
1: nevada okay i love vegas um but you know when i hear a lot of folks saying well you know i can't afford to buy a house dot 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 where i want to buy one Hmm. You know, there are a lot of affordable houses all across the country. They're just not in places where you happen to wanna to live. Mm. Um, you know, it used to be, and this this is where I, you, you're telling me to hitch up my grandpa pants and point <laughs> yeah, my finger at yeah, yeah. you kids. First of all, let me just say, I am not a boomer. I don't care what anybody says. I was born in 1960. Um, I began high school in 1975. No combat truce in Vietnam, no draft. The, mm-hmm. the 60s and the 70s were a distant memory to me. I was eight years old in 1969. I don't remember Woodstock. I don't remember any of that crap. Yeah. So late boomer. I, they call my my little notch between 58 and 64 Jen Jones sometimes. You know, that's but a new we one are, to me. Huh? That's a new yeah, one Generation to me. Jen Jones. I, I, it's a kind of, it came into, for about fifteen years, people have been using that expression, but i I, I don't um I, I just don't identify with the boomers um culturally or chronologically. Um, and I I was a very cynical generation. I mean, graduated in seventy nine mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you have to remember when I started high school, the President and the vice president were people no one had elected. Think of that. Hmm. Nixon what do you mean had resigned? Nixon oh, had resigned. Okay. Um, you know, Gerald uh, Agnew resigns, Ford becomes vice president. Nixon resigns, Ford becomes president, appoints Rockefeller going into 76. You know, talk, you know, oil shocks, stagflation, um, you know, complete political chaos at the top. It was a hot mess. Yeah. All right. But one, you know, when you look back and say you had it better. First of all, I graduated into about a nine percent unemployment rate mm. that stubbornly stayed there. I mean, when I graduated from college four years later, it was still like 10%. I think by I think when it was high school, it was like seven or eight percent. By the time I got onto got college, it was almost 10%. Mm. Inflation, which we're panicking about now at three percent, was 10%. My student loans, yes, you're right, college was cheaper. My student loans were at 13.9%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I was given a relief on my student loans to 9% in the 1990s. Hmm. Mortgages, car loans, credit cards routinely at 15 17 18%. So, well, houses were more affordable. Yes, but mortgages worked. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're cherry picking this nostalgia for what 1980 looked like is cherry picking mm. all of the best parts of it, but forgetting, you know, waiting in line for gas, um, you know, forgetting that, um, a mortgage was 16% car loans were 15%. I mean, you mm. were paying, you are bleeding money, uh, in every direction. The other thing that I think where I'm just going to, you know, you're saying, well, Tom, I'm struggling. It's paycheck to paycheck. And yet here you are, Chris, hosting a podcast on high tech (laughs) equipment, wearing really nice headphones, living in Las Vegas. I'm sorry, but my heart is not bleeding for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that makes sense. You're sitting here on a weekday afternoon, shooting the shit about politics. You, you know, you're not. That that doesn't feel like suffering to me, hmm. um, but I, I just want to I want to do the old grumpy old man thing one more time. Lay it on me and say, you know, you're looking at. Well, I can't live like my parents did, as I point out in the book. Kevin Williamson great Green Lane said, "Oh yes, you can. You can live like your parents lived. You can have a 1957 or 1977 1990 lifestyle, uh, very affordably, but you have to commit to it. That means." No more of this. Yeah. No more of this with this computer. Um, one TV, no cable, one car, mm. much smaller square footage of living space. You can have all that. You just don't want to. What you want is to have the 2020 living standard, but you want it at 1975 prices. Hmm. That
0: makes, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I can, I, I took a walk through my old neighborhood in Boston the other day, my, my college neighborhood, and I can't afford to live there now because the, the apartment that I lived in, has been rehabbed and gentrified is beautiful. Um, and it's cost as much per month as my mortgage now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, well, you know, see, you could afford to live in Boston. Yes. I, the apartment when I lived in it was cracked plaster, cockroaches. The superintendent lived underneath me and smoked cigars all day. Mm. Um, it had that great kind of cabbage smell that cheap apartments always have, that musty, cabbagey smell. Um, you know, the floors were warped. There was no air conditioning. The sinks didn't work. You know, lots of little cucarachas as roommates. Um, you know, yeah, I could afford to live there. I don't want to do that again. Yeah, And I think, you know, that is part of the, the problem that we keep saying, well, I can't live like my parents lived, but you keep imagining how your parents lived without having experienced it. Hmm. My dad, my dad bought our house in Massachusetts. Your dad bought a house in Massachusetts. Yes. He bought a house on a polluted river in a depressed factory town that, um, was, had tar shingles, And abandoned tires and, and wire and fencing in the yard, uh, clawfoot tubs, cracked walls. My parents spent 25 years trying to get that house to presentability, Mm. basically, you know, and it's like, and it cost him a year of his salary Mm. that, that in terms of the mortgage, um, yeah, I, I think. There is no arguing that there are some problems. Healthcare is more expensive because you also because you live longer. Yeah. You know, healthcare is cheaper when people die in their 50s. It just is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, college is more expensive. Well, because we all go and we do it floating on huge amounts of federal loans that we don't think about when we take them out. Um, you know, housing is more expensive in part because we all want to live in the same places. Mm. Um You know, I started to say, and then I'll get off this soapbox, but I started to say um, it used to be like when I graduated from college, you went and looked for the job and then you moved to where the job was. What really strikes me about your generation, you kids today, (laughs) you kids, you guys decide where you want to live and then you look for a job. To my generation, that is alien. Like you just didn't. You know, when I was, um, I I ran out of money in grad school. I figured, well, I moved over into Russian studies and I learned Russian. And I said, well, if I can't make it um, through a PhD, I'll, I'll have enough Russian to go to work for the government because during the Cold War, if you could speak Russian, that was like job security. You could just do that. And uh, I ran out of money, and so I went on the job market and I got offered a job um, at the as a Russian as a Soviet psychological operations analyst with the army in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Yeah. Now you can imagine for a New England kid who spent most of his life in Boston uh, and New York, moving to Fayetteville, North Carolina was not my idea of a good time. But I said, you know, that's where the job is. And so I went down to Fayetteville. I interviewed for the job. I got the job. I started looking for an apartment. Um, my girlfriend and I broke up because she didn't want to move to North Carolina. Yeah. And so I said, well, it's time to you know get on with my life. Um, at the very last minute, Georgetown calls me like um, two months before I'm supposed to move. And they said, hey, we'd like to offer you a scholarship. Mm. Come on down to DC. And that, that changed my life. I mean, I, but the idea that I would say, well, I'm not going to take that job. It's in North Carolina. That wasn't an option. I had to eat food. I had to find warm, warm, a warm place to sleep in winter, Um, you know. And so I said, well, here's my, here's what I can do. Here's the, you know, skill set I have. If I go to North Carolina, then I go to North Carolina. Today, I'm amazed at the way people say, you know, I'd like to live in Northern California. I'd like to live in New York. I'd like to live in Chicago. So I'm going to pick that city and then I'm going to look for a job. And I'm like, that's backwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. You've, uh, and
0: I appreciate it. This this is why I'm someone who loves tough life. You've helped bring me back down to earth a little Tom. because sometimes I feel like I'm a bad millennial, but being here in Las Vegas, for example, I think about the entitlement of the people in the next state over in California. I'm like. What, what gives you the right to live in Southern California next to the beaches and just think you deserve to live there. So Las Vegas is cheaper, but regularly I do acknowledge that there are other places even cheaper than Las Vegas, you know, and uh, in Las I,
1: Vegas. I'm sorry. That's where I go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I live, I live in Rhode Island, right? And if you ask me how I feel about living in Rhode Island, I go, you know, it's okay. There's a lot of strip malls and you know, <laughs> like the, Biggest landmark in my neighborhood is a is BJ's. You know, I mean, it's just a neighborhood, but I'm a mile from the beach. And I realize that suddenly people go, Oh yeah. You know, like they will drive three hours to get here to, to spend the day where I just drive by every day and I don't even think about it. Look, every place I, I, I did a radio show in Olaha once, and I've been mm-hmm. to Omaha. And the, you know, we got talking about this kind of Resentment of being called flyover states and red America blue America, and I said i've been to omaha it's nice it's a nice city and it's yeah. it's affordable. you can live like a king you know in in Omaha um you know, but you have people saying I want to live in certain places and do certain jobs mm. right I mean I, one of the real curses uh, is this what there's a a professor at uconn he coined this term i don't think he's right about a lot of stuff but i think he was right to coin this term he called it the overproduction of elites mm. where colleges are cranking out kids who say well my preferred job is writer i want to be a writer well you know what i want to be a hollywood actor it's not happening either yeah you know i want i want to be a um you know uh, um i want to work in the west wing and uh, be the national security advisor. That's not happening either. P- people are choosing, instead of saying, look, I just have to go to work. I'm 21, 22, graduating from college. I'm thinking of a job. It's like, well, no, I want a career and I want it to be a very satisfying career right out of the bucket. Mm-hmm. And I want to be one of the creatives. This is, you know, like mad men. I want to be one of the creatives. Well, I, I you know, I, a, a student asked me for advice once about, mm. trying to think, this before the pandemic. So this is four or five years ago. And um, he said, well, look, I said, he said, I, I you know, I want some career counseling as a undergraduate. And I said, okay, well, you know, he said, well, I want to do what you do. How did you do that? And I said, uh, uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I want to be a professor and I want to write books and I want to be a pundit and I want to write for magazines. And, you know, and I said, okay, I didn't really start doing that till I was about 52. Mm. So I said, You got to do a bunch of other stuff for about 30 years. And then maybe I can give you, I said, and the the student kind of looked at me like, like, what do you mean? Like, I just want to do it. You know, I'm like, it it doesn't work that way. And I said, and I can't really explain my career because like all careers, there's a certain amount of luck. Yep. And, and zigging when I should have zagged and bumping into somebody who. You know, I mean, there and I think part of this sense, this comes back to your question about tough love, part of this sense of entitlement and, you know, why is democracy screwing me over?
0: Uh-huh. If you
1: begin from the assumption that I, at, you know, 21 years old, here's my life, it's planned out, here's the career I want, here's the city I want it in,
0: uh-huh. you
1: are going to be disappointed over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the best advice I can give to I will end this tough love segment by saying <laughs> if you, if you are 21 and you said, when I graduate from college, I want to live in New York city and be a writer. I guarantee you that by the time you're 25, you will be angry and pissed off and disappointed. Mm. Count on it. So here's, so here's, here's where i'm curious
0: right like your your book i feel like you know whenever i'm reading a book one of my first questions like who's the target audience right and in your book our own worst enemy it's us it's all of us right so we got millennials right we got uh you know we got jen jones we got the boomers gen x all these people so how from your perspective what is it with you know people? in your age group and stuff. Like when I look at, you know, uh, just the people who are pissed and saying like, oh, you know, this country isn't working for us and, you know, and just freaking out. Like, so how do we explain other people who have been through, you know, what, what your generation has been through, but they're still angry and pissed and, you know, all these other I, things.
1: That, you know, for all of the, um, for all the horse whipping we just gave to the millennials and, <laughs> and the young ones, they're not the problem. Um, I actually think the kids are all right. I think that, you know, I'm counting on Gen Z and the younger folks to kind of move us past this, The the most difficult people when it comes to illiberalism, when it comes to this, you know, sort of rejection of democracy are actually reasonably well off people over 55 years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because uh, for a lot of reasons, one is um because they are having a midlife crisis and life has not turned out the way they want um and because they have developed a sense of grievance about status rather than actual economics and Mm -hmm. a lot of that is tied into race um you have a lot of middle-aged white men saying the world is changing you know i was told that Uh, you know, and I was assured as a young man that the world was my oyster and, you know, here I am, you know, 55 and still working and trudging through a job I don't like. And, um, you know, and all of these, you know, multicultural, multiracial kids are telling me that I suck. Um, and, and, uh, they're not right. Um, they, They are privileged. I mean, you see this in Italy, you see this in the UK with Brexit. Mm. Um, All of these kind of populist movements are actually fueled by the first people that would be dispossessed if populism were actually a thing. Mm. Um, uh, But I think, you know, they are also the people who have the leisure. And I say this in the book, this is a bored middle class, bored out of its mind, that has the leisure to sit around and stare at YouTube and Facebook and Fox all day long and sit there and get you know revved up and say, Yeah, I I've been screwed. I this country didn't work for me. I mean, I I had friends, I'd always tell this story because it's such an evocative story. I mean, I have friends who grew up like me, working class, no college, you know, tough background, hard scrabble childhoods, and they're they're sending they're posting stuff on Facebook about how the country screwed them over while they're sitting on their boats. You know, yeah. I keep going back to this boat thing that suddenly this middle class, which is actually very prosperous, says, I've been screwed over. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all developed that sense of grievance. We have no gratitude about the world that we live in in the 21st century. We just don't even think about it because we've adapted to it. And we said, Of course, of course, we all have air conditioning. Of course, over-the-counter mm. drugs are miracles that th- there, there, are, there are over-the-counter drugs that I take every now and then. I look at that and I say, I remember when this stuff was $50 a bottle and a prescription. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: you know, you um, know, flu vaccine, forget about coming up with a COVID vaccine in a year. Flu vaccinations. Oh, well, you got to go to the doctor and you're going to make it a book. Bu- or today, walk into your CVS, lift up your arm, boom, shot, good bye bye yeah um we don't even think about that stuff anymore because our standard of living has become so high that we've just gotten used to it we just expect it as our as our entitlement as our due mm-hmm. um and so you know that to me that's the real problem is this kind of bored middle class revolt um that that tears down democracy so that this bored middle class can become the action heroes of their own movie yeah And that we saw that on january 6th yeah that was that was a bunch of people saying i am the, i am i'm tony stark you know i'm uh i'm jack reacher i'm i'm the hero of my own action movie now
0: yeah yeah it's really interesting too the way the way you frame that because i i'm more of a psychology nerd and i think about like hedonic adaptation like when things get better now we just kind of want more and more and more so i can see people kind of forgetting like like for example in 2012 i was a rock bottom drug addict when i got sober right and i try to remind myself like like you mentioned like i got these nice headphones i'm paying my rent like 2012 like I was sleep. I, I was lucky to sleep on a couch. You know what I mean? So I try to remember that and just like get back into, into gratitude. And like, you know, we, with this and with everybody.
1: From- ask this, Chris, mm-hmm. just ask anybody of your generation to describe an oxygen tent. I don't even know what that is. A, <laughs> that, that kind of <laughs> sucked you in on that one. Yeah, you baited me. Uh, and an oxygen tent is what they, like when you had a heart attack, or pneumonia or anything, you know, you go into the hospital, right? They take, they turn a little tube, they put it in your nose. Suddenly, you you know, you feel great, right? They used to, they didn't, literally, they would put you in a room with a big plastic tent over you and pump and turn a big metal knob to try to pump oxygen into that tent. Wow. Like, and if, and if somebody lit a cigarette, which people did, of course, and people used to smoke in hospitals, that's the generation you missed. People smoking in hospitals, doctors sitting there talking to you with a cigarette in their hand in their office. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and if somebody smoked, you could literally like these oxygen tents, like explode them. That was normal. That's nice. And we just say now, of course, you know, heart, my dad had a heart attack in 1974. And he was in the ICU for two weeks because they don't know, they didn't know what to do with him. You know, like, well, good luck. Mm -hmm. Um, Go home, take naps, make sure you're okay. You know, now you're like, God, you know, knock on wood. But um, you know, most people they're home in a few days, they're given Mm. blood thinners. And, you know, you can literally take your EKG with a little gizmo attached to your phone. Mm -hmm. Um, We've just gotten used to that. And I, I think, I, let me anticipate when i know some people watching are going to say they're going to say yes tom you think we should trade off our well-being for a bunch of gizmos and gadgets mm-hmm. and my answer is your well-being is is vastly higher than you realize it is compared to even 20 years ago mm-hmm. and and you just don't understand it because you have been you have internalized the message that your your wants are needs and that everything you want that isn't that you don't get is not because of your own lack of talent or because of bad luck or because of you know um, you know ups and downs of the economy it's because the entire system is screwed and it's rigged against you and if in a fair system you would be doing exactly what you want exactly the way you want to do it mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'll hear Tom for your next book. Your next book should probably be like a self-help type book where, where you just lay that tough love. I, I would, I would, read I, I don't want
1: to, I don't want to get into that Jordan Peterson space, <laughs> gonna, you know, make your bed and all that stuff. Seeing someone else has done that. I, I, because I don't think, you know, I don't think that rules for living and, you know, pull your pants up and all that stuff. You know, if, if you start from, a basic sense of gratitude and you, you know, mm. having gone through what you went through with addiction, you know, gratitude is really important to yeah. life. Um, if you start from that basic sense of gratitude, the rest will come. Yeah. and in- including the understanding of where things are bad, because I would never look, you know, into a camera here and say it's all straightened out. Everything's fine. Climate change can be okay. Income inequality, who cares? No, those are real problems. But they are not problems that exist because democracy is bad. And that's really what's at the center of my book. Stop thinking that democracy is the problem. You' are the pro- the choices you make as voters, um, as consumers. Mm-hmm. you know, part of the when people say, "Well, jobs went away." Well, jobs went away for a lot of reasons, including that we as consumers want a lot of cheap junk. Yeah, yeah. Jobs went away. Because we didn't want to work some of those jobs. Whenever I hear someone say, "You know, my grandfather's era, my dad's time," there were there were good factory jobs. And I think to myself, "You've never seen the inside of a factory. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't those jobs. You you would be you would spend three days on that factory floor, and then you would do what a lot of people do. you'd look for another job, and you would let immigrants who will take those jobs uh, do them." Mm-hmm. You know, there there are a lot of jobs that your parents and grandparents did. Uh, you know, I, I lived right across the river, five minute walk. I remember my best friend's dad, he was an Italian immigrant, used to get up and he, he didn't have a driver's license. He would walk down and walk to a factory right across the bridge. It was a paper factory. They made um, notebooks. And he stood there for eight hours a day, stamping and assembling notebooks one after another. Little spiral bound notebooks, picking them up, putting them in boxes, stamping them a the wire and putting them pick them up, put them down. You tell that to some, you know, 18-year-old kid saying, Okay, I have a job for you. It's in a factory. It's making notebooks all day long in an unair conditioned, big, dusty, nasty factory on a polluted river in a small town. And they're gonna say, see, democracy sucks. Yeah. When in fact, those were the jobs that sustained, you know, millions of people in the 1960s and 70s but but i actually think it's a sign of a better society that we are not making people do that anymore Mm -hmm. it's horrible it's horrible work it kills you young It, it there's a reason that people at 60 looked really old you know yeah yeah
0: so where where does like there, I see a lot of similarities. Like I love the depth of expertise, right? And and again, that goes back to like, I think a lot of it goes back to us. I hear a lot of people talk about the failed education system and all that. But for example, right? So here's where where Chris gets into some tough love. Like I'm a college dropout. I was a drug addict until I was 27. And now I read, you know, uh, I'm on track to read like 300 books this year, right? And, And, you know, to your point of like, you know, technology, I listen to books. I have an app that converts PDFs to audio so I can listen. It's amazing. But anyways, like with, you know, in the age of COVID, with people falling for like conspiracies and election fraud, and it almost just happened again in California. Like, where does this kind of blend in? Where like this kind of, I don't know, the, this lack of intellectual humility, right? And people not understanding how things work or trying to educate themselves. You know, there's research that shows like when people have access to Google, they think they're smarter than they are. You know what I mean? So how I read does that, a whole
1: book about that?
0: Yeah. So how does that kind uh, of tie in oh. with us being our own worst enemy and this lack of knowledge or trying to learn and be more, you know, wise and knowledgeable? That's
1: that's the problem of narcissism. Mm. i'm smart well yeah okay but that that doesn't mean you're you know about viruses um you know (laughs) it doesn't i mean the i i really bristle when people say well the education system is the problem no we've never been a more educated public
0: Mm.
1: high school when i when i started college high school graduation was it was not uncommon to run into people who had dropped out of high school and I don't mean like inner city black kids, right? You know that stereotypical TV show of, you yeah. know, the urban gritty high school. I mean, like people. I knew I knew people in my neighborhood that I went to high school with who dropped out. Who literally like guys that I would wave to on the street, go, oh, yeah, you know, you quit yeah. school last year, you know. Um, the, the and again, we go back to this problem of the middle aged folks. Some of the people that are the most illiberal are the people like my age who had civics, Mm. who went to high school during the golden age of public education funding, who have some community or state college back when it was completely affordable. Um, It's not, education cannot inculcate virtue. Mm -hmm. And 40 years of a culture of consumerism and self-actualization that has told us that everything's about you, you know, um, I did a, I did a podcast with, um, NPR where the, the producer had put together a string of ads from the sixties and the seventies and the eighties that, that <laughs> were just great. Cause he's about my age and he said, yeah, you know, and it was, you deserve a break today. You've come a long way, baby. You know, you deserve it. This yeah. is about you. It's your time. You know, that, that 40 years of us saying, yeah, it is about me. Um, and then someone comes along and says, listen, um, you have to do the thing I'm telling you to do because it's a very dangerous virus or, you know, because, mm. uh, you know, because I have more knowledge than you do. And I just have to, you have to kind of let me drive the car here for a moment. People say, I'm not doing that. You're not the boss of me. No <laughs> one's the boss of me. Um, and, and I think we have become. I think the other thing that happened since the late 60s and early 70s is that we monetized and consumerized a youth culture, a perpetual youth culture. It really strikes me looking around, thinking about when I was a kid in the late 60s or the early 70s and looking around now, it is really hard to identify people that you instantly recognize as being adults. You know, I, I I, I see men and I say... I don't really know how old that person is because he's dressed like a nine year old, you know? Yeah. Um, it, and has the attitudes of a nine year old. Mm. And I think that became a thing that we just, that being young and adolescent perpetually became a part of our culture and was something that was sold to us um, as a positive good, even in our pop culture. You know, I, I don't want to hit this point too hard because I'm a, I'm a pretty immature guy in some ways. I mean, I, you know, I play computer games and I have my little bobblehead from my Fallout 4, you know, <laughs> computer gaming and, um, uh, you know, and I love superhero movies and all that crap. But when the top movies of the past 20 years are basically all superhero movies, it tells you something about how our culture and that the average gamer is like 35 years old now, you know, like that. I seem to remember, I don't kill me about this statistic because I remember reading somewhere that like gamers are like now guys in their thirties. Well, you know, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't because I was, and there were games when I was in my thirties, but I was busy, yeah. um, you know? And um, I, I think we have kind of become a permanently juvenile culture mm. this way. Uh, and and that, I think, you know, democracy requires stoic, cooperative adults who understand reason and persuasion and not always getting your way. And I I don't think we're that kind of culture anymore. I think we are a perpetually adolescent culture, and you yeah. see it even in our cultural base about how we dress, what we go to see, what kind of music we listen to, you know, what our favorite movies are, and and so on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That I, I absolutely agree. Something I've noticed just even, you know, even recently, uh, one of my favorite pastimes is, you know, especially just since COVID is uh, just seeing these viral videos of stuff going on. Recently, it's been like school board meetings and you have, you have people from school boards resigning. And I'm just, you know, I see this lack of like emotional regulation and I'm like, What's happening? And and in the book, you talk talk about, you know, these anger issues people have and all these things. And, you know, I have a couple more questions. The one thing I I would love kind of like your overall thoughts is social media. Right. So you talk a bit about social media. Look
1: on social media. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and yeah, so. So here's my question, right? So yesterday, at the time of recording this, there was this huge like expose about Facebook came out, and they know it's harming like young young women and all these other things. But like, I I found you on Twitter, loved your Twitter, and I love how you share people's cat pictures with you with your book and all that. What a, brightens up my day. But anyways, like social media, uh, you know, it, it connects us. It helps me get you know diverse opinions, but also is where a lot of fighting happens and a lot of ridiculous. And I'm curious, like. You know, there's all these problems and how misinformation spreads, but there's also this way for like you to get your your opinions and your your workout and stuff like that. So, do you see it like kind of like net positive, net negative? Like, if you could snap your finger and get rid of social media tomorrow, you know, would you? I'm just I'm curious of like the the big picture thoughts you have on
1: that. That Thanos finger snap is pretty <laughs> tempting right now. <laughs> you know, I was a techno optimist. I mean, I uh, I I was, when, you know, I was, I began my teaching career when I was 28, uh, my full-time teaching career. I first started teaching in the mid-80s. My first real teaching gig was 1989, and I thought, this is transforming the world. Mm. Like, I remember calling in my colleagues, hey guys, look at this, this thing is called a browser, like Netscape, right? This thing called Netscape, you know, and it's sitting there going, you know, like, and I'm like, oh, let's find a website. Cause there's like 10 of them, you know? <laughs> uh, and I remember thinking this, this is great. This is going to create more international understanding, more connection among people. The problem is uh, that it has become like all things. It's kind of like food. This is the, I always use this, this um, uh, metaphor of food, you know? When I was a kid in the 70s, the, the belief was that we'd all be eating Soylent Green and starving and cannibalizing each other because it would be overpopulated and there wouldn't be enough food in the world. And of course, the, now we know there's, there's the problem with food is the supply, supply and getting it there, but we're up to our asses in food, Yeah, which is why we're all obese and diabetic because we're all eating junk all day long. Yeah, um, And I say this as, you know, sitting here with, I'm glad the camera only goes to here. I'm <laughs> um, And we make bad choices about that. So we created this ability to generate tons of food and then we eat, you know, McNuggets for breakfast. Same thing with information. We created this miracle of the internet and we use it basically to, you know, the biggest internet industry is porn and then we use it to basically yell at each other and fight with each other. And I th- again I'm just going to keep hammering this point because it's about narcissism. There's a great line, and I'm part of this problem. I have an ego. You know, I my I have a big Twitter account. I love it when people say, "Oh, I love what you said." You know, yeah. like like yeah. like. You know, I get that <laughs> little dopamine rush. Um but I think um that it, it's the person who said it really well and I I wish I could remember who how to attribute this quote, but it was Every tweet boils down to acknowledge that I exist. Mm. And every tweet, if translated, means acknowledge that I exist. And that becomes why I'm saying, and the way I'm going to make you acknowledge that I exist is by making you mad. Mm. And then because anger, and that's a form of emotional engagement, right? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing people on social media will not accept. They cannot accept indifference. They They want you to love them or hate them, but you are going to engage with them, and you are going to know they exist, and you are going to feed that narcissistic need, uh, even if they have to publish, you know, racist memes to like shock you into responding to them. Mm. And and again, it goes back to you know the guy who Ate in it. the rest of his day has to wear a paper hat or you know um, work shorts and and you know trim a tree. Um, can go online and become a great social warrior, uh, you know, and a hero for Donald Trump or a social justice warrior, warrior for the left, or they can live out this fantasy life online of I am I am really important. I am the leader of a movement, I am somebody. Yeah. And that's poisonous after a while.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: poisonous. Um, you know, part of the reason that I enjoy cat pictures, first of all, I love my cat. Yeah. Um, it, it's a reminder, Hey, most of us are just ordinary people with dogs and cats. You know, Yeah. when people get really mad at me online, my answer to them is move on, ignore me. Duh. You know, I'm paid to have opinions. I I'm paid to put my opinions out there mm-hmm. and write articles. I'm sorry, but I am. I chose that career. Um, if you don't like those opinions, you know, let the market speak by just saying i'm done i don't read that guy instead it's i am going to engage and i want to have a white hot narcissistically energized interaction that that gives me a feeling of meaning and existence so that when i so that i don't have to leave the computer and go and do whatever job i have to do or clean my yard or change my kid or scoop out the litter box or walk my dog because life i think people and this comes back to the bigger issue we were talking about chris i think people find ordinary life too boring and too dull Mm -hmm. and i think one of the things i'll just add an autobiographical detail here one of the things that made me realize that ordinary life is not boring is that i was hit by a car and i was almost killed Mm. Uh, now that you know having a near-death experience like that, yep. you wake up and you say, wow, this is the bonus round. You know, every day that I, that I can actually walk to the bathroom and take and pee, you know, on my own steam without having to ring a bell, you know, that's a great day. Yeah. Uh, and every day that I can drive a car and go buy a, you know, bag of groceries, you know, without having somebody have to drive me because I can't move my head, you know, it's a mm-hmm. pretty good day. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, people have just, again, forgotten that. They they think that life is dull and it has to be livened up and they have to be involved in great things on great issues. Um, uh, let me let everybody off the hook for one moment as well <laughs> to say it is also the nature of Facebook and cable news and social media to appeal to your worst and most narcissistic instincts. Mm-hmm. Because it says to you all day long, you must have an opinion right now. You know, yeah, yeah, we need to know even, you You know, what the when we're talking about this, and at the moment we're doing this, the big issue has been um, the revelations about General Milley. And, you know, did he talk to China? Did he worry about a coup? Did he interfere in the nuclear chain of command? And, you know, my Twitter stream, now I, I am an expert on this stuff. Yeah. Okay. I work on these things and I have said, look, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Yeah. I'm still waiting for information and trying to parse it out. My Twitter stream is full of people very confidently saying, now this is what the nuclear chain of command is like. And I want to say to people, you know, you're not required to have an opinion on this right now. It's not a necessity. It's okay if you just say, hmm, I hope to learn more. Yeah. But, but the nature of Twitter, the nature of Facebook, the, the immediacy of the way things are reported in the twenty-four hour news cycle, kind of sticks that electrode into your head like a crack monkey, and says, "Have opinions. You must have opinions. You have to have them right now." I fall prey to it. Um, you know, yeah. Like I said, I'm paid to do it, uh, to have those opinions. But but, you know, the average person, it's okay if you disconnect for a few hours and say. The world will turn without my view on whether or not Mark Milley disrupted the nuclear chain of command. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 definitely uh, a big issue. I, I, I definitely agree that's one of the biggest things. Like I've talked with, you know, many people on the podcast just about like how to think and a lot of it's just slowing down, right? And like, I don't need an opinion, but, but yeah, like uh, to go back to you getting hit by a car, like I can relate to that near-death experience. This is something I think about, all the time, Tom. Like back in 2012, I was 27 years old, congestive heart failure in a hospital. They're like, hey, you got like a 20% chance of living. I wasn't allowed to see my son because my addiction was just so many things. Right. So today, like, like a lot of the bullshit does not bother me. Right. I'm like, I'm like, you understand how little that problem is in the grand scheme of things, but. You know, I, I recognize like we can't go hit everybody with cars or we shouldn't turn more people into drug addicts, you know. So so the last thing I want to talk to you about in I the was, book. And I was hit by you know a ahead. drug dealer. <laughs> well, by I, the way. I'm glad to say it wasn't me. Hopefully it was nobody I, I knew either. <laughs> but I've seen one of the solutions you talk about come up uh, uh, quite a bit lately, which is people should or like we should implement a policy where people kind of have like this service to our country right so you know uh again like hopefully you know there's not a war where we have to implement it like a draft and people have to like go do stuff so like so for the last thing like to end on a positive note and to get into the solutions like what is that not even what does that look like but like today today without a government policy of us getting into solutions you know like what do you think, like, if someone's listening right now, you're like, you're, and they're like, you're right, Tom, I'm a narcissist. I, I throw my opinions out. I argue with people. I'm a very angry person. What, what can we start doing right now to kind of have this connection with
1: our country, with our fellow people and stuff like that? Okay, first of all, if you're the kind of person who says, I'm a narcissist, you're not a narcissist.
0: <laughs> a, psychologist, <laughs> a
1: psychologist once said to me, the real sign of a narcissist is that they are not capable of forming that thought. So yeah. if you if you're sitting there listening to us and saying, "Hey, I wonder, maybe I'm that kind of guy," then the good news is you're not that kind of guy. Um, if you're the kind of person listening to us saying, "Well, that's not me," and my my anger is totally legit, you're the person who needs to do a little more work <laughs> um, and ask yourself, you know, is your anger legit? Is you know, could the world turn without your hot takes for for twenty four hours? Um, my comment i I think a lot of what we can do even though in the book i suggest some larger structural things i think this begins at the personal level Mm. and i always tell people be the example you want to set um be civil in your daily interactions you know i was talking to somebody one time we um we were talking about the guys you see on the highway with the i saw a guy on a highway with it can i swear on this podcast go for it Uh, okay um so guy had a big sign on his truck that said Fuck Biden and fuck you for voting for him. And, you know, my wife and I looked at it and, and the first thing we thought was, what a sad person that must be to advertise that. Yeah. But then they said, you know, he was, we were on the mass turnpike and he wanted to take, wanted to get in lane. And I slowed down and I waved him in. I said, go ahead. Instead, I need, because people put a flag like that on their truck because they want to have dirty looks. They want to fight with you. You know what? Don't be that guy say, I see you. I get it. We all see it. It's like that commercial, that Geico commercial, right? We all see it. We all see it. <laughs> Progressive or whatever it is. We all see it, you know, fine. Um, and be polite and just say, look, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to feed this this narcissistic grievance that you're waving as a big blue flag behind your truck. You'd like to take a left and go ahead of me. Feel free, fellow citizen. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be be polite to people. Don't take any shit from anybody. I mean, that's different. Yeah. That's You know, don't be a doormat, um, but don't go looking for that. And, you know, I think what people really find is that when you won't engage like that, when you won't provide that kind of negative energy, they, they kind of don't know what to do. And maybe it does trigger a little bit of shame. Mm. Um. You know, be polite, be adult, Be be the person you want other people to be. And then in your civic habits, read a local newspaper, make sure you vote in every local and city election, not just every four years, Mm. you know, Um, watch your local news broadcast, Um, not just, you know, the, the rage a hall guy at eight o'clock, or, you know, your pal, Rachel at nine, or Chris Cuomo or Sean Hannity, You know, and look, I, you know, again, I'm part of the, I'm, I'm on, I do Morning Joe. I've done a couple of other shows. I do them pretty regularly, Um, but, you know, it's okay to say, hey, I'm going to turn on channel whatever here in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to find out what's going on in my community, Yeah, you can do all these things. These are not momentously difficult things to do. This is the way normal Americans used to live before we were jacked into the information economy and the information culture 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look, you know, I admit it. I'm the guy in the grocery line. I'm checking my emails and I'm, you know, I'm doing all that stuff. Yeah. But it's okay to not do that for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. I think just set a better example for the people around you. Don't go looking for those fights. And at Thanksgiving... When Uncle Ned comes in and says, I'm here, I want to talk about stolen voting machines and Hugo shut. just say, you know, because that's B, that's emotional engagement. Just turn to that person and say, pass the potatoes. I'm not having that discussion. We're not, we're not doing that today. Yeah. It's not no. time or place. Yeah, I absolutely uh, agree, and I, I think
0: that's a a great note to end on because I I can relate to that, especially just not engaging. It's it's really surprising how effective that could be. So, but yeah, like we we barely even scratched the surface of all this stuff you address in the book, and uh, I've seen a lot of people taking pictures with their animals, so I'm guessing it's doing well. But I hope more people get it. So so yeah, the book is available everywhere to my knowledge. Is it available internationally yet, or is it just in uh, the states it'll so far? Drop,
1: um, Next month in Canada, and then the month after in um, Europe, in Great Britain, and in Europe, at Got Oxford, it. UK. Cool. But it's available everywhere in North America now.
0: Beautiful. So, so, yeah, uh, you're on Twitter. I'm going to link that down below. Is there any other places where people should be looking to find you, like, you know, uh, to stay up to date with your work, or is Twitter, Twitter the best place?
1: Twitter, and uh, I write regularly at The Atlantic, um, so, you know, you can always find my work there. Um, I'm a contributing writer there. So, you know, um, again, we don't need to, if you, you know, we don't need to be, we don't need to spend all day with each other every day. Um, I want to get my, um, my poorly informed takes, including my unbelievably bad views on music. um, You know, you can always find me uh, somewhere on social media, but Um, yeah.
0: I just follow for going, the animal please. pictures. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I, I it was a pleasure talking with you. I love the book. And and yeah, maybe we'll do this again next time when you write you write your next one. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tom Nichols. Like, I was that fun. Was that fun or what? And and you know what? And here's here's one of my main takeaways, and you know, after editing and everything like that, like. Someone told me when I got sober, and actually, well, it's kind of a common saying, I believe in uh, the rooms of, you know, uh, 12-step meetings and stuff, but anyways, it says, keep people around who tell you what you need to hear and not what you wanna hear. And yeah, that's why I love this conversation. Like when I'm able to say, all right, give me some tough love and he doesn't, you know, like, in this in this world, uh, in this climate where, you know, people get outraged and we feel so sensitive and people like explode, like when we're able to say, okay, hit me with the tough love, hit me with some stuff that I need to hear, you know, it, it helps. It helps us grow as people because, you know, like this conversation, it opened my eyes so, so much because although I've read books from, you know, people from Tom's generation and things like that, like, Tom was able to like, you know, hit on things that I was unaware of. And it really puts things, you know, in perspective. And this doesn't mean like, oh, well, you should be grateful because you're not in the 1920s working in a factory or whatever, but it really puts things into perspective. And, and yeah, like we finished at this episode, like, it's all about gratitude man. Like a lot of it has to do with gratitude. So hopefully you don't have to be like Tom and get hit by a car. Hopefully you're not like me and have to become a drug addict and ruin your life to experience this kind of gratitude, right? But you know, in my in my personal opinion, when we're able to experience gratitude, we, we look at the world and the changes that we need in a much better way because we're not so fueled by this like anger and this rage. Like we, it, it, it brings some, some balance to that perspective. But anyways, uh, like I mentioned, Tom and I barely even touched on all the topics from his book. I think my favorite chapter is like, hello, I hate you. I think that's the name of the chapter, but yeah, it is. It's, it's such a good book. I could have put it down. So head down to the description. If you're not yet, make sure you are following Tom over on Twitter. Grab a copy of his book, all right? And like we discussed, it'll be released uh, in some other countries very, very soon here. And I'm also going to link The Death of Expertise. Um, Those of you who follow me, you know that I love keeping books in my rotation that remind me how dumb I am. All right. Uh, and the death of expertise, it reminds me, like no matter how much I read, no matter how many topics I'm, you know, I think I'm well versed in, like I have to stay humble. I have to trust people who know more than me and listen to their opinions. And you know, right now, with all the talk about vaccines and mass and you know reopening and closing and kids going back to school, like we have to be able to know who to listen to and who not to listen to and all that. But yeah, anyways, if you're new here, again, make sure you're following the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. And all of you, if you're not yet, check down the description, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. There's a few reasons why you need to follow me, all right? And it's not just to boost my ego and my numbers, all right? One of them is, one of them, most importantly, I love chatting with all of you. I love interacting. One of the reasons I do so many episodes of this podcast is because I I love talking to people. I love getting different perspectives. And I don't know, like, I don't know if it's because of the pandemic and you know, we're not getting out as much, you know? And like, we got out for like a month in the summer and then Delta came around, but I love chatting with people. And I, I like when people disagree with me, as long as you know, you're mature about it and we can, you know, have a discussion, I love it. So make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter and yeah, let's have a discussion. But also this way you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Uh, you, you won't miss any of the other stuff I'm working on. Like I have been writing a ton on my Substack, for example, it's 100% free. And I've been writing like crazy. Like just this morning, I wrote uh, a piece about why we're so obsessed with the Grammys. Yesterday, I wrote one that was, you know, kind of about, uh, you know, trying to succeed while not being annoying or a creeper. Really, I, I enjoyed writing it. But anyways, yeah, follow me on social media so you don't miss any of that stuff. All right. But a few ways that you can support the podcast. If you enjoy what I'm doing here, a few ways to support that are a hundred percent free. One, I've already told you, make sure you're following, make sure you're subscribed. Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you're listening on, make sure you're following it. Next, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, share it. All right. If you, if you think this conversation with Tom was good, if you're like, you know what? Some some people need this kind of tough love, whether they're millennials or boomers or generation Jones, they need some of this this tough love from Tom. Share this episode or any other episode. All right. We talk about a whole bunch of different interesting topics with different authors and all that. Last thing that you could do, last thing you could do, no matter what platform you're listening on, head over to Apple Podcast, search up the Rewired Soul Podcast, leave a rating, leader, leave a review. All right. All of these things help get the podcast out there. This podcast is growing like crazy. And I love you all. I really appreciate it. We just started in May. And I am blown away at at how fast it's taking off. But you know, I want to introduce more people to these conversations. And you know, and anybody who likes to learn so all that stuff really helps the algorithms and push it out more. All right, but another uh, quick thing, don't forget, my books on addiction recovery and helping someone, you know, who struggles with addiction free on Kindle until the end of the day. But you can also find all of my books. I've written some other mental health books at the soul.com. If you're interested and want to support the podcast in another way, you could become a patron. That's linked down in the description below. And lastly, um, is an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Mental health is a huge part of my life. I've been sober for nine years, but mental health is still my top priority. BetterHelp is a service that I have personally used, and I truly believe that everybody can use therapy. So, with our health uh, our healthcare system sucking, uh, with people not having that much money, BetterHelp it's it's affordable. You do it online. You work with a licensed therapist, and they even offer a sliding scale if you are you know struggling like many of us are during the pandemic. So check out that affiliate link uh, for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, but anyways, another huge thanks to Tom for coming on. Like I said, he's such a busy guy, so I really, really appreciate it. For all of you who are new, thanks for checking in. And for all of you who have been tuning in, I know some of you listen to like every single episode, like you're the real ones and I love you for it. All right, so all of you make sure that you have an amazing rest of the day. It's only Monday. And we have some great, some great episodes coming for you the rest of this week. All right. So stay tuned. Okay. So thanks again. And I'll see you next time.